Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, let's do this, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fuckineers, what the fuck nicks. How are you? Hope everything's all right. I am Mark Marin. This is WTF, the podcast. Welcome aboard if you're new, uh, and to all of you uh, old-timey what-the-fuckers, happy to have you. Before I get started with the show proper, I would like to say that tomorrow night, that's May 21st at 8 p.m. at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, we will be doing a live WTF taping. That's with Laura Keitlinger, Moshe Kasher, Brendan Walsh, Jim Earl, and Eddie Pepitone. If you can come down, go to UCB Theater with an R-E at the end, T-H-E-A. TRE.com uh, for information and reservations. Love to see you there. Toronto, Canada, May 27th through 29th. I will be at Yuck Yucks. Uh, I'd love to see you up there. I know I got a new uh, a lot of new fans up in Canada. You can go to yuckyucks.com for reservations and information on that. And hold on. Here we go. Wait for it. Pow! Oh, God, I just shit my pants. Justcoffee.coop. Or you can go to WTFpod.com for JustCoffee.coop. Uh, it's worth it. Um, jacked. I, You know, I'm a little weird today. I'm a little pensive. I'm a little... Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know how to handle this monologue because I'm going to talk about my father. And I know some of you think that, why is Mark talking about his problems or talking about this? Why is he so goddamn personal all the time? I don't know. I don't know how else to do it. And my guest today, Tracy McMillan, who wrote a book called I Love You and I'm Leaving You Anyway, it has a lot to do with her father and her relationship with her father, who was a pimp. Her mother was a prostitute. She was brought up in foster homes. And we're going to talk about fathers. And I start, you know, you, some of you guys know my dad. I mean, he's nuts. I mean, he's really nuts. And I know a lot of you have difficult relationships with your fathers and and at some point you got to get over it. And I believe that I'm over mine and I just have to accept that that's the way my dad is. If he's not too dangerous or too uh, driving me too crazy, you know, I got to love him because he's my dad. But let me tell you, man, it was no easy bit of business. He was nuts and he's still nuts. He's a little more endearing now as he gets older. The great thing about uh, about crazy no matter how you, you know, dangerous it may be, and as I said before, he was a functioning crazy person, he still is, is that as they get older, it, it it's not as menacing as it used to be. And I think he did a lot of things for effect. I think, I as I've said before, and we'll address it a little now, I think that all father-son relationships on some level are, are battles to the death in a very weird and uh, historic way. Maybe it's metaphorical. Sometimes, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes things get ugly, but I've, I've taken my dad on. I, I know some of you guys know what that feels like, where you have that moment where you're like, this is it enough of that shit. I didn't do it physically, but I remember one time, you know, he was sending me emails that were offensive and provocative. And I started going back on the emails with him and, you know, you know, hitting him on his points because he wired me. So he knows how to hit my button. So I started hit, hitting his back. And I remember we, you know, I finally got on the phone and I literally was like, what the fuck is the matter with you? What the fuck is the matter with you? What does this mean? What does that mean? I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And he finally broke. And you know what it was at the core of all that shit? When my dad finally broke down and I got the upper hand, all he could say was, fuck you. Fuck you. That was at the bottom of all of it. Fuck you. 
And I got to just say, you know, that's my dad. Huh? I'm trying to get past that because I'm assuming there's another level beneath the fuck you. Like, help me or I'm sad. Yeah, I, I'm sure that that's there. I, you know, my memories of my father later in life are, and he's, he's still around, obviously. We're going to talk to him today. I remember one time when uh, he was living in Phoenix for a few months. My brother lived in Phoenix. And we hadn't seen his new apartment. Uh, my dad invited me and my brother over, so we drove over to this apartment. We walk in. The door was wide open. We walk in, and we're like, hello. And we hear my dad go, uh, come upstairs. So my brother and I walk upstairs not knowing what to expect because he is our dad. And we walk into his bedroom, and he's sitting on a bed, and he's got about you know 10 or 15 guns sitting on the bed. And he's just sitting there, and he's like, uh, how you guys doing? And he starts laughing. And me and my brother look at each other. And uh, again, you know, I, at some point, you just got to go, ah, yeah, that's, that's my dad. He's sitting on a bed with a bunch of guns laughing. Okie doke. And then the, I think the most profound uh, moment I ever had with my father, and I don't even know why, I wish it was playing ball. I really do. But, you know, I'm dealing with a guy that, you know, is a little bipolar. He's doing better now. But you don't know what's going to come out of a manic brain. You don't know how they're going to behave. You sort of spend your entire life going, uh, yeah, in social situations going, oh, God, I hope this doesn't get weird. I really hope it doesn't get weird and inappropriate. Oh, please, please help me. Please. A lot of that. Well, here is a story, and I don't even know what to do with it. And I don't think I've ever really told it. My grandfather passed away. My father's father, Ben, passed away. So I remember, I can't remember, it's probably about 15, 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. Yeah, probably 20 years ago. I don't know. But we had a meet in New Jersey for the funeral. So I, I go out there with my brother. And, uh, and my dad's a little manic. He's a little too chipper for a funeral, especially the, his dad's. And, you know, the family's there. My dad's, you know, walking around like, hey, how you doing? What's going on? How's everything? You know, it's, it's a little disconcerting. I, But it is what it is. It's my dad. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the funeral's going on. You know, people are meeting. And then, you know, in the, in the room where the service is, there's the plain pine box closed. Jews do a plain pine box closed casket. And my dad says, uh, you know, walks up to the funeral director, a woman. And says, uh, I'd like to take a look at the body. And I, in that moment, I was standing there. I'm like, all right, uh, you, you want to do that, Pop? And he's like, uh, yeah, I, I'd like to see the body. And Jews don't do that. So, but I was like, all right, well, you know, okay. And uh, why don't I go in with you? Uh, you know, uh, you know, so I can be there for you. So we walk into this, uh, this uh, sanctuary where the casket is. And this woman, who is the funeral director, uh, you know, opens up the, the top part of the casket. And then there's, uh, you know, my grandfather is in there and he's got the, they have the tallest, the prayer shawl over, you know, kind of wrapped around him over his face. So she opens up the prayer shawl and there's my, uh, my grandpa's, uh, you know, little dead face there. And my father and I are standing there and he looks at me and then he, uh, he, he, he pries open my dead grandpa's mouth with his finger you know, to look at his mouth. And I look at the funeral director and she looks at me. This is clearly unorthodox. But, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, my dad's a doctor. You know, he's used to dealing with this. But this is a little odd. And the funeral director says, uh, is everything okay with the mouth? 
And my father goes, yeah, yeah, it's him. I'm like, what? He's like, I just wanted to make sure it was him. Those are his teeth. And uh, I go, okay, okay, we good here? And uh, my dad goes, yep, we're good. All right, close it up. And it's one of those moments where you don't quite forget it and you don't know what to say, but you know, I got all I can do is go, yeah, that's uh, that's my dad. I don't know, man. I don't know. And this Mother's Day letter, you, you know, it just every once in a while he'll surprise you. He's a pretty charming, funny guy, but then there's just moments where he sent out this Mother's Day card to my brother's wife, who my brother forwarded to, to me because we tend to forward each other uh, our dad's uh, insanity when it is uh, documented. So it's got, I, I got to tell you, it's laid out like a card. It's got a little owl on the uh, upper left-hand side. It's one of those, uh, you know, the the format. I don't know what you do when you want to send an email. That's fun and a little card. So it's got a little owl on a branch and some wood grain. And it says, uh, Happy Mother's Day and Grandmother's Day. Checked out a few quotations. Quote, I used to think it a pity that her mother, rather than she, had not thought of birth control. Unquote. Uh, Muriel Spark. Uh, a daily life treating iotrogenic and street trading drug dependent hard heroin addicts and lackluster unenthusiastic sad specimens of society bring validity to that quote human pollution is the drug world legal and illegal couple that with the industrial pollutants destroying our food chain the geo genetically engineered crops and creatures and uh improving our capitalism profit margin in italics add the threat of muslim domination of europe and bawala modern society takes on a beauty all its own i don't even know what bawala means if you've forgotten this is a mother's day card quote the doctor of the future will give no medicine but will interest his patients in the care of the human body in diet and in the cause and prevention of disease unquote thomas alva edison reassures me that my hobby practice of wellness and ideal immunity that's in quotations as if someone has accused him of only having a hobby passed through at least one genuine genius mind have a good and growing following in that area alone the stumbling block is poverty of the masses making cho carbs the stable of all diets severely low vitamin d inadequate other vitamins few omega-3s especially during pregnancy lowers iq of baby eight to ten points due to uh, impecunious existence and severe family ignorance, coupled with wrong social choices and denial that a radio, TV news, and newspaper exist, even World Wide Web-only news would be welcome. Again, if you'd forgotten, this is a Mother's Day card. Quote, Thinking out of the box is a learned process that should be next to godliness in the priorities of what to teach your children. The trick is to recognize when the box itself is faulty and deserving change. Unquote. Barry Marin, uh, while watching and hearing a jury of 12 peers in Oklahoma make a decision in an Oklahoma medical malpractice case against a loser doctor. Shades of the OJ jury nullification. Now, I, if you're not paying attention, he just he just quoted himself. Mother's Day card, if you forgot. Enjoy the late great United States of America as it morphs into the socialist USA. Words cannot help if all reasonable actions have failed. The Uzi and Magnum are the must-have entities. Own one, learn to use it, and carry it. You and your children will, with reasonable probability, need them sooner than later. Barry. It's a Mother's Day card. So my brother sent that to me so I could enjoy one of these brain skids of uh, 
weirdness. And, and all I could write back uh, to my brother was, uh, that's my dad. Whew. Yeah, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to accept your father some at some point. You might as well get it done sooner than later. My guest in the garage is uh, Tracy McMillan. She is the author of I Love You and I'm Leaving You Anyway. And I used to work on United States of Terror, which is a great show. Yeah, she's very talented. Yeah, I've never watched talented. the show, but the posters make me believe that she's very talented. <laughs> yeah. All the advertising indicates that she, she can do a lot of things. She, she pays it off, too. <laughs> oh, good. She, she I, delivers. I know people like it. I just don't seem to have the time to uh, to watch things. I don't know where the, where the fuck people get time to do anything. So this book... Now, coming to this book is interesting for me because I know you socially. Mm-hmm. I have respect for you as a person. Thank you. Uh, I know we have common friends mm-hmm. to the point where, you know, my ex-wife is thanked in the book and mm-hmm. she has written her own book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my feelings about what happened with all that, in, in a very interesting way, the way you talk about your side of, of these situations, mm-hmm. your relationship with your father, your relationship in your three marriages, your relationship with your son, with drugs, with alcohol, mm-hmm. uh, was a tremendous revelation to me. Huh, interesting. I never hear women talk about mm-hmm. what's going on. Mm-hmm. And when they do, I'm not sure I'm listening. Mm-hmm. But this is very honest stuff. Well, and it mm-hmm. comes from a deep place. And usually they probably are talking about it like they want you to change and they want something from you. And so it's hard to hear when somebody's like coming at you with something and here's somebody who wants someone else to change. Right, exactly. <laughs> who wants something from someone else. So you were like, oh, okay. It was probably voyeuristic. This book is about uh, you, about your, your you inter, the narrative uh, alternates between mm-hmm. your childhood with a, a father who was in prison, mm-hmm. a mother who was a prostitute but didn't play a big part uh, in your life early right. on, uh, a series of foster uh, mm-hmm. care situations, one with a, a Minnesotan, uh, right. were they Lutheran family? Yeah, Lutheran minister and his wife you lucked out kids. there huh totally i lucked out being born in minnesota <laughs> i uh, no kidding yeah i, I like minnesota oh, they're, it's they're, the best. they're decent people mm-hmm. as they say mm-hmm. uh and then you know sort of interspersing the idea of uh moving through this relationship that you had with the with the uh, emotional bonds in your life as a child mm-hmm. and then you know sort of comparing that to uh, your relationships with men as an adult and ultimately you know resolving some of these issues around having the father that you had and That's among right. other things mm-hmm. and here I'm talking too much. You got it. No, you get an A. That, oh, that's thank it. God. Well, I cramped. <laughs> yeah, I never. I, you know, I bought the book a week ago, and, uh-huh. and I've been reading it. But like, I got home, I got busy. I was in mm-hmm. Portland, where you lived. Mm-hmm. The amazing thing you did here, and and you know, for the first two thirds mm-hmm. of the book, I was getting a little frustrated. Uh oh. No, 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 no. It wasn't that. It, it was beautifully written. But there, there is this when you depict a childhood. Where you grow up in this element, mm-hmm. you know, and and we're about the same age, so mm-hmm. I, I really liked all the references to big cars, to mm-hmm. to certain recording uh, technology mm-hmm. and things that like it was definitely. I grew up, I grew up in New Mexico, which is a small city, mm-hmm. so driving and but I, I didn't grow up with a pimp for a dad, mm-hmm. but that there were two things you did that I found to be fairly uh, great, which was you somehow managed to not at all throughout the book, even when you acknowledge uh, at the end that you you had this childhood that could have been seen as such. You weren't a victim. Right. And I, I, I sense that was a very conscious choice. That It wasn't that you kept it light, mm-hmm. but you, you were careful not to bring that weight to it. I don't think I feel like a victim. Ever? Um, it's not. I think victimhood is one stage of a person's evolution. 
Okay. It's the beginning stage, you know, where you're like, this is all happening to me and life fucking sucks. You know, I quickly moved out of that to realize like, oh, there's another way to look at this. I cast myself in the um, in the hero's position, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes I look at my life this one way. I, I look around and I go, oh, yeah, I was put in foster care at a really young age. But it was maybe, maybe it was this part of myself that knew in a very sort of like I got a stick and I got a bandana and I got my shit. And I said, guess what? <laughs> we can do better than this. Right. <laughs> you know, because yeah, yeah, yeah. these people are fucking crazy. <laughs> so let's get out of here because there's a whole world out there. Let's get in it. Yeah. And I, when I look at it like that, I think, you know what? That was a good thing. That was the best fucking thing that ever happened to me is that my mom gave me up. Well, that's an amazing story that, that you should tell, that your your father, you know, the, your love for your father and, and, you know, that evolves over the, the course of the mm-hmm. book and then obviously the, you know, fuck him and then, you know, the re-engagement uh, is pretty fascinating because I, I don't think anybody has that intimate a relationship and, and is so eloquent about it with a pimp. Mm. So what what was that like, essentially, in your recollection of, of the, the impact he had on you in terms of charm and emotional possession? Wow, that's really interesting. Well, I think if you look at like the photographic record from when I was a, a very small child, my mother was completely incapacitated very early on. So my dad was like Mr. Mom. Mm-hmm. And I do think that my dad has a highly developed feminine sense. It's like the part of him that can put together an outfit. And he's really... Um, kind of have to in that line of work. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and you know, the thing about being a pimp is like, very few guys stop at pimping. It's like pimping is like part of a whole... It's like saying you're a cigarette smoker. Mm-hmm. It's like you're smoking all the time. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're smoking in the morning, you're smoking at night, you're Even smoking... Even when you're not working. Yeah. Right. You know, so he's like pimping. Pimping is like a state of mind. Yeah. It's like an, it's a state of mind where you exploit anywhere that you can Uh and um so i think the thing with my dad was twofold one i was like his talisman he carried me around and you know if you've ever carried a baby around you realize they are up in your face it's like sitting in the front row of a movie theater you know yeah so i imagine that here i was around this guy he's carrying me around he's dressing me really cute he's doing all these things in his life he's taking me to drug deals he's doing what he's driving around in his car he's in that energy all the time of like ooh, there's a hot girl because my dad's real thing is women yeah that's his real thing yeah i think he did the crimes and all that other stuff just so he could get some power so he could have women want him yeah um i think people commit crimes for different reasons right you know? some yeah. people want to get back at somebody some people want to do violence or express rage my dad wanted love of women he wanted to be regarded by women as and be wanted and i think that goes back to his relationship with his mother sure well now the the interesting thing that i didn't see in it because y- you know you keep it fairly personal mm-hmm. was that there's this uh this conception that that is based in reality that y- you know what pimps have to do mm-hmm. to keep women right. in line mm-hmm. in their work mm-hmm. is fairly violent and, and and i feel like my dad was is not a violent person well so he didn't have to do that he was that good i don't know maybe or maybe it's not the <laughs> that's just one version of it. Uh-huh. I mean, his story that he tells is that every single one of these women came to him. You know, okay. That they came to him. Yeah. And they said, I need a man. Will you be him? <laughs> and he's like, well, I guess so. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Now, you got to always take everything my dad says with just a little bit of like, okay, well, maybe that's the story. I don't, you don't get around my dad and feel violence. That's right, not the but- thing. And he also was like... um, 
he was like a lot of a grifter. You know what I mean? Like they were doing hustles also. So what they would do is they would send out like my biological mom. They would send her out there and then she would involve herself with some guy and then maybe they would get some money from him, maybe Uh a large sum of money. Uh And it's all based on like that she's very sexually desirable and then they would run away with it and then the guy can't do anything because there was all the sex involved. You right. know, yeah, so it yeah. was as much that kind of thing. And then there were other times where they would like, you know, um, put women, you know, like um, women out there for like very high end call girl situations. You know, I don't know that he really had street walkers as much as he was like working a bunch of angles. Yeah, he was working a lot of angles. And, and, and the women that he had and his wife were partners. Yes. And they knew what was up. Well, I don't know if all of them were. Right. But, you know, I don't yeah. know that all of them were. But your mom. And I'm not saying all of them were. But my biological mother, because I want to be very careful to distinguish between the mother who gave birth to me uh-huh. and the other mothers that I had, mm-hmm. you know, because I had other mothers. Yeah. And they were not involved in this, to my knowledge. Right. But your biological mother, you didn't spend that much time with her. No, not really. About three years. And it turns out that she was relatively unstable. Oh, yeah. Very unstable. Very and early. Was life. that your father's first real uh you know he was 29 when i was born uh-huh. um and she was 20 uh-huh. so he was a lot older than her but he loved her and to this day when he talks about her he gets a far away look in his eye so then after all this and i like the you know that this was part of the the way uh, because a story like this could be fairly menacing and mm-hmm. not as sort of buoyant and entertaining mm-hmm. as as you uh, allow your older self to to recapture mm-hmm. this stuff uh, that the energy that you say sort of uh, stays with you throughout your life mm-hmm. that you have to assume you were absorbing yeah. in this environment was what what exactly? Um, I think it's like a it's like a schmoozy charm. Like my dad's just super charming. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to imagine like but the sexuality like, too. Oh my god, yeah, like this really powerful sexuality. Because like when I came into my own sexuality around seventh grade or whatever. I started realizing like this was very familiar to me. Mm-hmm. And I talk in the book about how I found some pornography on the bus when I was 12 years old. And I read, I looked at that thing and it wasn't unfamiliar. It was shocking, but it was totally familiar. There was something about the energy of, let's call it addictive sex, right? Where mm-hmm. sex is like the drug, mm-hmm. right? That was extremely familiar to me. And... um it it super scared me, meaning like sex on down on the ground, like with just like a cute boy. Yeah. That was scary. Yeah. But sex, the big picture sex, I was very familiar with that. And I knew that I could tap into its power. It was just also frightening to me. Like, I think I had some trauma around it. And I don't know exactly what happened or when or where. But clearly, I either witnessed too much or, you know, when you're a foster child, like things happen to you because the people who are supposed to be your your linebackers or whatever, they're not there. Right. So um, I don't know all the details, but all I know is that was really familiar to me and still is to this day. I it's not even that I'm attracted to it as much as I respond to it. Right. And I say respond like, you know, like a person might um, like an involuntary response. You feel the juice. I feel it. Yeah. Yeah. And I've learned how to do that, but I've actually backed away from it because I see that it did not actually bring into my life what I, wa- what I wanted. Yeah. It took a while, though. It took a while. <laughs> yeah. It took me a while to come into it, too. Like, I'm like a person who didn't even... I'm like a person who, um, who had two alcoholics for parents who didn't have a drink until she was like 34. 
So there's something, well, I mean, I don't think that's uncommon for, for children who grow up in that kind of chaos mm-hmm. is that sort of control right. that, you know, at the core of your being, yes. you know that there's this chaos around mm-hmm. and you insulate yourself. Yeah. So when you first saw pornography, it probably just blew your mind. It did. I, I mean, I had, I remember that experience mm-hmm. the first time I saw it because you know what, you know, those feelings are somewhere there and yeah. there's equipment here meant to do this and yeah. that there's a lot of desire and feelings attached to it. But when you see it that graphically, it's sort of like your whole body just kind of shuts down and goes weird yeah i mean it's true i think that's true about pornography i think it goes straight to your brain it's like it's like a hit of something you know that's why it's like the most addictive substance on the planet well i don't think anybody says that i don't hear anybody saying pornography is the most addictive substance on the planet i hear people saying pornography is awesome yeah, well, yeah, I you know I've had conversations with uh, with sex workers, a porn star, and and my own sort of uh, uh, trying to assess this. That mm-hmm. in in my mind, I, you know, I know on some level it can't be healthy for right. culture or individuals yeah. to have this much access as we do. But the one thing that Dennis Miller ever said that mm. I thought was il- interesting was that that internet porn was going to make crack look like Sanka. Oh, that's interesting. Because like, I feel like porn, I don't know if I think it's like crack, but what I do think is like is cigarettes. Mm. I think it's like a thing that in 20 years or 40 or however long it'll take, we'll be like, it'll be like how we think of smoking in the 40s. Mm-hmm. Like we, everybody did it. It was super, cl- we, we liked it. It was fine. We didn't think it was anything about it. Well, we think- didn't realize that it was causing possibly causing harm like i'm starting to think it's harmful well i talked to uh to a guy i have on this show almost dr steve you you might know him steve danziger and uh you know he deals primarily with sex addiction and and he says that that what we're risking is is really the sensitivity to other people that's what it is you know my dad as a pimp as a grown-up he's really taught me tracy once you start trading sex for money you can never go back and you never did that. You're I very clear. I never did that. I never did it. That you you made this statement in the book where it's like I didn't do that. I didn't strip. You know, which which are, you know, fairly common repercussions oh, of living in the I, environment that I you think that in. would be the most normal thing in the whole world if I had become a stripper. Were were there junctures where you considered it? No. It never it's weirdly, even it's just not my temperament. Like I'm really cautious, you uh-huh. know? Like of all the wild and crazy people, I'm like the super cautious one. And of all the cautious people, I'm the wild and crazy one, you know? But it's just something like, I think this is where my trauma came in. I think whatever went on, my particular imprint was that it was scarier than it was fabulous. Yeah, right. And I also had, I don't know, there was just a part of me that was like, you know what? I'm going straight. Like, I just made a decision fairly early on in my life. Like, I come from all this, Mm -hmm. but I don't want that life. I know what it is. I'm going to go straight. I know it's going to take a lot longer. I know it's not going to be any easy money. I know I'm going to have to work at Starbucks. I know it's going to fucking suck, but it's okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> I've seen what it does. Yeah. I, well, that's a, that's an amazing insight and fortitude because I think that some people in those lines of work use sex to insulate them as well. That, you know, they become like, this is this and I don't have to engage right. emotionally. Oh, definitely, definitely. But what my dad was telling me, and fairly early on, not so much about sex work, but in every way, is like, Tracy, you don't ever, I remember him telling me, you don't you don't have anything to hide. Keep that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a precious commodity mm-hmm. to be able to move through the world without any secrets. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's yeah. interesting. I was probably 20, one twenty two when he told me that, and I really took it to heart. My dad's very wise, yeah, and I was like, "Wow, I want to live a life where I don't have to be in the criminal mindset, uh-huh, I don't want to be in that other world, even though there's a lot of power over there, uh-huh, it's just 
I don't know, for whatever reason, it just wasn't my path. So Well, that's great. I mean, I, I feel I, lucky. I don't take any personal credit for it. I don't right. really think like, oh, I'm so awesome. Right. I did it all by myself. I don't right. think that. I just think it wasn't my path. So now the the title comes from a moment that you acknowledge later in the book, but it comes from you know what happened when your father went into prison for the first time, mm-hmm. and that was? Well, oh, he went in for the first time when I was about three and a half or four. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the title comes from realizing... I don't know. It's hard to say exactly where the title comes from, but I know there's that moment when I first met my natural mother mm-hmm. and I realized that she loved me and she left me anyway. Like it was never that these people didn't love me. Right. And she had put you up for y- your father's girlfriend at the time. He married and legally adopted. Yes. She, his wife, his yeah. adopted you when he went into prison Yes, because your mother in retrospect realized she couldn't handle it. Yeah. Well, she... Yeah, she could not deal with it. In fact, my dad says that she never wanted a baby. He basically locked her in a room until the baby came. Me. <laughs> well, that's a that's a little violent. I mean, it's, I, you know, it's funny. I mean, that's what he says. I don't. I'm sure that's sure, like yeah. the literary version. Yeah. But, um, you know, she ended up having five kids. My mother, she had five children, and you know, various. She raised them in all. You know, I don't think all of them did she raise from beginning to end? I think each of us spent some time with somebody else. One of them was given up. I had a sister at the time I was given up, a half-sister. She was uh, nine months old, so she got adopted. Well, the, the the great thing about the book in 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 terms of how people see themselves or how they, they see expectations, cultural expectations, mm-hmm. is that the way your family worked and what you had been through put you in a position that that seems chaotic mm-hmm. uh, but you know especially within the the black community when you went b- down south to sort of mm-hmm. track down uh, uh, your family mm-hmm. is that you know when there is a community that that the community seems to, to step up and you realize that you have all these relatives that you, you didn't really realize you had and even right. in, the, in the foster care that you you, know, you had people that loved you there but right. that even in all this chaos the the bonds that keep people together are deep and real mm-hmm. and and a lot of people don't have that in any sort of uh, eccentric way mm-hmm. or, or way that you had but it's interesting to me that the, the human spirit when it comes to children and even in this criminal element that in some ways the bonds are almost stronger and deeper than regular or normal things that we consider that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. I think people in like communities where there's a lot of risk, you know, um, they learn to keep their bonds no matter what. Like certain, like my cousins are much more bonded in some ways to my dad when I was younger than I was because I had absorbed like the dominant culture's idea of what fatherhood was. A good father is somebody who, you know, fixes the chain on your bike and is there, you know, um, at your high school graduation or whatever. He's like doing things for you and it's whatever. And you accord respect based on what he's doing for you currently. Mm -hmm. Well, in my dad's family, you accord respect because he's your dad, period. It doesn't matter if he's gone. doesn't matter if he doesn't, doesn't matter. Yeah. So it's not based on what he's doing. Right. And that's a really different whole, you know, but I quickly was was put very, at a very young age into the other culture. And so those became my values. And that caused me to turn away from my dad for a long time. And then in, in this book also, uh, I, I don't want, I, I want to make sure that, that people understand the, the texture of this right. life 
is that so you you move in with your father's wife because he's yeah. got to go to prison and she adopted you mm-hmm. and that di- that relationship is difficult because mm-hmm. she's selfish and crazy and, and has an idea of the way things should be well and you know like she's a guy who or she's a girl whose husband you know wants to be with a guy who's in prison yeah you know what i mean <laughs> one like of those that, girls like just i don't want to say anything bad right. at all i very much appreciate what she has been in my life and uh-huh. let me just put that on the record um but at the same time, if you and I had a girlfriend, just a chick we knew, yeah. and she was like had a boyfriend who was in prison, we'd be worried about her. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. And, if, and she was like, oh, I'm going to take his daughter. Yeah. And you'd be like, you are? Yeah. What <laughs> does know? that indicate? She's How eight? is that healthy? How yeah. old is she? She's eight? Oh, my gosh. That girl's going to have some problems. Uh-huh. This might not be what, you know, a happy ending. But you that know? girl will have problems in the same way that you had problems. And, and I think we all judge along those lines and, you know, reading enough books about this stuff and trying to assess why people do what they do. But in the same mm-hmm. way that you had all these marriages and your relationship with your father was what it was, you can't, you, there's some things you can't, you know, love is is pathological when you deconstruct yeah, it. Yeah, it's true. But there's nothing you can do That's in any right. given moment to tell somebody you look, Nothing. you got problems. Yeah. You love a guy in jail. You want to take his kid. What the fuck right. is wrong with you? Yeah. What right. are they going to hear that? Right. No, <laughs> no one's going to hear that because people are on their path. I don't even think they're supposed to hear it. I mean, let's get real. Like life is pathological. Yeah. Thing, it's a mess. Life is going to kill us. Yeah. No one's getting out of here alive. That's right. No, if we, And I say, you know, at the end of the book, like if you're supposed to have a perfect life, it's like you're here as a daisy or uh-huh. a house cat. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Human beings, it's a mess. We do messy things. It's like. That's how it is. And uh-huh. you've got to kind of embrace it, find the humor in it and the folly in it, and to forgive yourself and to move on. But and you've got to know when you've been beaten. Yeah. And then once you <laughs> let go, that same thing that was like this quote yeah. unquote bad thing uh-huh. becomes like this good thing. Yeah. Right. If you get the wisdom. If you get the wisdom. But that's, and that's the free will part of it is that you get to choose. Well, I think that's interesting about your relationship with your father throughout these years where, you, you know, it was really, you know, a series of you you know, visiting him in prison. Mm-hmm. And at some point you have these expectations for him to take responsibility for what he did mm-hmm. or how he behaved mm-hmm. and what it did to you. Mm-hmm. And then that's one of those moments where, you know, this dude may never change. He may, he probably will never change. And even so he read the book, he called me from prison and he said, I read the book and he was, I don't know that he said, oh, wow, I really got it. Uh-huh. No, he didn't say that. But but even if they said that, you know, what do we think that's going to do? Yeah, right. Because no amount of apologizing right. enough, they're not going to be able to make up for the time. No. That That's that realization that comes mm-hmm. along with the same thing about the inner child that we, you know, we we abandon or we just let cry and we don't integrate is that, you know, the opportunity for them to parent us is behind us. Mm-hmm. It's There's it's nothing true. they can do. That's true. So either you walk around like an unparented child mm-hmm. for your life, mm-hmm. or you get that kid to grow the fuck up. Yeah, or you start parenting that that's person. That's right. And you go, wait a minute, I'm the grown up here. And that's like a huge paradigm shift. When you go from being like moving through life as a child who's like looking for stuff from everybody. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what happened with me with men is that I realized like, my after becoming a mother, my relationship to men changed. I became, um, because I was growing this baby man, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from infancy and he's now 13, I started to realize like, oh, there are more relationships to have with men than do you like me? <laughs> there are other- Am I pretty? Yeah. Yeah. Am I hot? Am I hot? Yeah. Am I hot? Uh-huh. Am I hot? It's like there are other relationships to have. Uh-huh. And actually they really appreciate that. 
because that question, am I hot, does not bring out the best in a man. And I would say like marrying that third husband was one of the best things I ever did. Not only was I supposed to marry, I had the feeling it's like things get confusing when you have two feelings. One, I'm totally supposed to do this. And two, this is totally not going to work. That's where... Right. That's where things get interesting. Right. You know, that's where you have a real character. That's like the start of the episode as right. a TV writer. That's sure. the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Um, but I think that I was supposed to do it. Right. And it wasn't supposed to work. I just think like the happy endings um, dream or the utopian idea that not in every situation was I'm supposed to do this mean it's supposed to work. Uh-huh. It means that for some people, but now I look at the people who like one of my best friends, um, oldest best friends who's in the book. Um, she's called Diane in the book. She married her high school sweetheart. Uh-huh. I look at that as somebody who like knows that they're supposed to be a doctor when they're 10 years old or somebody who's born with 50 zillion dollars or some other sort of state of being in the world that you are not necessarily responsible for, but that just seems to happen. Uh-huh. I don't think that she i think that's her life path uh-huh. to marry her high school sweetheart and stay married for 30 years yeah i actually it's going to be a lot longer than that yeah. but um it's not my life path you know yeah i i was she was supposed to do that i was supposed to do this but don't you i mean isn't it hard not to uh what, judge yourself well well of course judge ourselves but but to say like well they must be hiding something Mm. I mean, the compromise that they made. Mm. I mean, they must have turned something off. I just saw them last weekend, and I really believe, like, I don't think so. I know a lot of people want to say that, but I don't know. I don't actually think so. I mean, it doesn't mean that they don't have all kinds of shit going on. Everybody does, right? Yeah. It's just that their stuff doesn't threaten the marriage. Because they must have something uh, about their wiring that enables them to maintain intimacy with this enough trust not to get paranoid, angry, yeah. or feel abandoned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right. Now I'm going to have Good to work them. my way there. I know. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm going to have to work my way there. I think, I don't know. I don't have the answer. Like, does this mean that now I can stay married? Well, let's talk about the through line of the book that, you know, what you ultimately realized in this last marriage and in the, you know, mm-hmm. alternating um, a narrative, you know, where you know, that takes you your life post foster home, you know, took you to, to San Francisco, to mm-hmm. Portland, to New York, to Los Angeles, uh, to Salt Lake City. Of all places. With a man. Right. I mean, you must have thought that was going to work out. Who the fuck would go to Salt Lake well, City? Well, it's so for- funny because I was like, oh, this is going to be great. How the hell is that even possible? It's like a theocracy. I couldn't it's even. A theocracy. When you wrote about it, I was like, "Where did she find bars there?" Oh, there's tons of bars. The, in fact, the counterculture there is so strong. I, because, I would have to be because the dominant <laughs> culture. It's like the rebellion there. Yeah. Those are the wildest people I've ever met in my life. Some of them. No kidding. Yeah, it's like a very kind of almost Burning Manny vibe. Oh, like, really? Yeah, because the the dominant culture is so. That they have to work harder. Yeah. And and in one way, it's easier because all you have to do is swear or light a cigarette and you're like in a rebellion. Uh But on the and on the other hand, it's like um, it's so complete. The um, the dominant culture is so completely oppressive that you you spend a lot of time reacting to that. Well, it, it, and you have to react as big as it is. Sure, you have re- to match it's a, the equal the, and opposite the, reaction. The history of the Mormon Church. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what you're are fighting. A trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. <laughs> I'll have them in the house and let them talk for a while. Oh, you will. Oh, that's awesome. I have. Yeah, I mean, I tried to upset them, but you it's know, been a no while. No one ever tried to convert me. 
Yeah. I think they just looked at me and went, no, nah, we don't need her. Pass on her. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want her. <laughs> I guess that's one of the reasons where you're happy you weren't attractive to them. Yeah. No, I'm not saying I physically attractive. I some Mormon but... dudes really attractive. I have I know. To say. You wrote that. I'm I just... did. Because they have like this repressed, like, mm, that is kind of hot. Yeah, yeah. Like if you pop that open. They're kind of hot. Mm-hmm. There's some Mormon guys who are hot. Okay. I, I'll take your word for it. Yeah. I don't, I haven't met too many Mormons. Yeah. The ones I, but, I've met were lapsed. The thing about hotness though, I mean, I don't want to say that like, like I, I shouldn't say that because it's a kind of something I'm trying to unsubscribe from. Like to objectify a person in that way is not really, it's, it's not really where I want to be right yeah. now. Okay. Because I don't think, it's like you can go for hot, but what's hot really going to get you? I know what I think hot it's is. going to hot for a while. <laughs> yeah. But like you can't separate the hot from the disaster. That's where I came Your to. Your third like, marriage. Yeah. Like you, it's not like, it's like what they say. It's like, you can't separate, um, let's see, what's a good analogy for that? Like the very first thing, you can't separate pulling of the trigger from the death from the bullet. You right. know what I'm saying? They're yeah. one in sure. the same, sure. you know? So yeah. now I look at hot and I'm like, okay, well I know where, I know that that's the first scene in the hot movie and I know what the last scene in the hot movie is and I don't want the last scene and my only choice is over the first scene. So, <laughs> I'm going to make a choice to back away from the hot. Uh-huh. Well, essentially. That's, well, yeah, I th- you think you say that in the in the beaginning of the book. What what is the three letters that you use for nice guy? UNG, an which, ultra nice guy. Ultra nice guy. And that doesn't mean I have to go to an ultra nice guy. It just means I need to go to a place where I'm not in the per- treating people like objects. There's also a, a self-image thing about where you come from and, you know, how that made you feel and how you see yourself mm-hmm. uh, compared to, like, I thought that the catharsis around Gwyneth Paltrow initially mm-hmm. was was interesting. What was that about? I think a lot of people hate her because she's so privileged. You know, she gets a lot but you of- you had a visceral reaction oh, to her. You were, you and were working a, at your news job. Yeah. I think a lot of people- Okay. Well, the story of Gwyneth is- um, Actually, I read that at my readings. Uh-huh. That you want to read it? Sure. Um, so- this this comes at the time right after I had a baby. And, right. and becoming a mother really brought a lot of stuff to the surface for me. And one of the things that happened is that I became really obsessed with the um, power lines at the end of my street, which is just the setup for this little paragraph. Um, when I'm not obsessing about the power lines, I'm thinking about Gwyneth Paltrow, of all people. I saw her once at the Sundance Film Festival back when she was dating Brad Pitt. She was tall and blonde and rich-looking, exactly like in Us Weekly. At the time, I didn't think much of her one way or the other. But motherhood has forced my own daughterhood to the surface, and that is making me have all kinds of feelings toward Gwyneth. Like, I kind of hate her. Not actual hate-hate. I'm too Minnesotan for that. More like middle school hate. The special type of hate for tall, blonde, rich girls who date Brad Pitt that is experienced by the rest of us less fortunates which is to say, the vast majority of vagina-having Americans. I know right when it started, Oscar night 1997. I'm sitting there watching Gwyneth sashay to the podium in her pink Ralph Lauren gown when this intense feeling arises in me. The word envy comes to mind, but it's really more than that. It's more like injustice. Not wrongly convicted of murder injustice, but close. This is so, so, so unfair, my mind screams. How is it that one girl, Gwynnie, can pretty much get born, go shopping, date movie stars, sail around on Valentino's yacht, then collect an Oscar all before the age of 27? How does that happen? Of course, I already know how, and that's precisely what's got me so upset. There's even a special term for it. Gwyneth is a daddy's girl. Apparently, when you have a father who takes excellent care of you, who is dedicated to giving you what you need and what you want, 
and not just pixie sticks between prison sentences, you grow up feeling like you should be treated very, very well. You feel deserving. And other people just naturally feel like you deserve stuff too. So they give it to you. This is obviously not quite what happened to me. But rather than mourn that, I've just decided to middle school hate Gwyneth. My whole Gwyneth daddy obsession culminates a few years later at work. I'm supposed to be writing something for the 5 o'clock newscast when Gwyneth's lovely face pops up on the 12-inch TV that sits on my desk. She's on Oprah. I have to watch. I turn up the sound just as Gwyneth is sharing a story about how her dad surprised her with a father-daughter trip to Paris when she was 10. They stayed at the Ritz or something five-star like that, just the two of them. What kills me is the part where Gwyneth tells Oprah her dad's reason for the trip. I wanted you to see Paris for the first time with a man who will always love you, he said. That's a quote. My first reaction is white-hot anger. A man who will always love me? No man will always love me. Tolerate me, maybe. Marry me if I beg him to or if I'm pregnant. But love me so much he'll whisk me off to Paris? Stop it. Then, and this surprises me, I begin to cry. Right there at my desk in the newsroom where everyone can see me. Big, clean tears like summery white cotton. The kind good for halter tops and elephant bells. Because Gwyneth was loved like that, and because I wasn't, but I wanted to be. Yeah. Good, deep, well-articulated resentment. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you keep reading the book, you'll see that 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 story resolves itself in a really beautiful way. It does. It, that resolves itself, and the uh, the moment that you realize that you have been exercised of your father's power mm -hmm. over your wiring mm -hmm. resolves itself because mm -hmm. of your third divorce, right? Mm. And uh, and 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 also at at the end of the book, we 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 you start to explore your deeper understanding of men because of your relationship with your son, right? And uh, it's very uplifting. Yeah, okay. I, I literally, when you walked up, I was cramming to finish it. And then we're sitting there and you're like, finish it. And you're working and I'm reading and you're right there. And I'm reading about you. <laughs> and, and I got emotional and I, I had to run into the house because there's just no way I'm going to start crying over, uh, over your book in front of you. Oh, We're not that sweet. close. I know. We're not that close, but we're going to be after this. I, it seems like it. I mean, I, I'm going to have to give you my book. Uh-huh. It's, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a collector's item. So it'd be nice if you had it. You can't get it anymore that easy. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Oh, well, it's my memoir was different. I, I, I extracted mm. my parents from it. Oh, very consciously. Interesting. Uh, I said, this has nothing to do with them. Mm -hmm. This is my life, okay. and it's very specific. Well, that's a stage. Is it? Yeah, I think it's over now, my stage. Yeah. So what's up with your dad now? Well, he's in prison, and um, he thinks he's getting out in October, actually. Um, there's this law. It's called the Second Chance Act. Uh -huh. And um, it's, if you're over 65 and you've served two-thirds of your sentence, you're eligible for home detention. And he thinks he's going to get out and in like October 1st. Do, do you think he's going to get out? I don't know. I really don't know. But if I had a chapter 18, it would be, I love you, but you're not coming to live here. <laughs> <laughs> I did tell him. I mean, I have really good boundaries with him. It's like, yeah, does he want to move to California <laughs> and live with me? Hell yeah. He would, but, right? Oh, sure. But he's not going to. Um, you told him that. Yeah, I did. How did you know, he understands. It's like, I have a whole life. I have a young son. I can't really be having any kind of element like that in my life. So Even at 65? Oh, he's 70. He'll be 75. And he still think he's dangerous. No, but I want to make sure that he's not. 
Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that he's. Not. I actually think he would be great to have around. Yeah, you know, be good would, times. Yeah, he's great. Your he, son will get a kick out of him. How old's your son now? A thirteen. Oh, yeah, man. he would get a kick out of he him. Would charm him. To and death. you know, you can't um, hustle a hustler. Uh-huh. So I think he would be great to have around. I'm. He's perfectly willing. You know, or welcome to come live with us. Uh-huh. But he's going to have to show that he can kind of stay out of prison. Uh huh. Do you That's think just that the deal at that age he's still got the juice to? I, mean, I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't know. Hmm. I mean, his last conviction was at 57. You'd think that was old enough. I don't think it has to do with age. I also like that your father, like not unlike most narcissistic, uh, selfish people, has these big ideas. Oh, he's got big ideas. In fact, one of the things that he was mad at me about yeah. in the book uh-huh. is that I said the thing about the earthworms. Because uh-huh. he, he said he wanted to be an earthworm farmer when he got sure, out. Sure, that's a good idea. I know. I'm like, earthworms, right? And I kind of, a little bit... You know, to me, that's sort of emblematic of the whole, that kind of sums it up in a nutshell. Uh-huh. And he was like, you make me sound like I'm not very ambitious. Oh, that and was like, an ambition problem. I know. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting that that's one of your few, like, you know, comments about the book is this earthworms thing. And I'm like, okay, whatever. He said he liked it. And, and now it's making the rounds. The book is making the to rounds. To the family. No, in the prison. Oh, God. Yeah. All the dudes want to read it. And now there's some guys who really want to know me. <laughs> oh, so maybe you haven't missed your opportunity to be one of those women who has a boyfriend in prison. I know, and I've never been very interested in that. It's scary. Yeah, I mean, you it's know, a, it's, I have a dad f- in prison. I don't need a boyfriend in prison. Well, th- that's the one thing you don't need, apparently, in mm-hmm. your relationship that's relative to your father. <laughs> yeah, I've had all kinds of everything out there, but not that. And the crucial, the the the, the real core thing uh, in, in, in understanding your relationship with your father and how it relates to, to the men that you've had in your life was what? Oh gosh! Um, that w- what is it in that moment with with Paul where you realize that you had transcended it, that you always date or marry men uh, for what? I'll tell you. Well, I mean, I had the two marriages, which were one thing, and then there was the, I you know, it's like I had the, I knew what to do, like, and I did it, but it never felt right, mm-hmm. right? Then I did the thing that felt right, and it was a disaster because mm-hmm. what felt right was my dad, which is basically someone who uh, who's gonna um, have. You know, it's not like lying and cheating. It's like he's going to have problems with the truth. You know what I mean? He's going to have a hard time. He's going to have like, um, I don't know, how do you even say what that is? It's like a guy who, first of all, has a really um, a deep, deep, deep overriding need for the attention of women. For love and attention from women. Uh-huh. And I don't see it as even being like cheater. I right. don't see that. I, there's no judgment. It's not that stinging. It's right. more like there was a mom thing that happened there. Mm-hmm. And there's a deep need to get that approval and love. Mm-hmm. And um, they could get it anywhere. And and, and because partly, partly men experience love through sexuality, it necessarily has a sexuality vector mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. But um, it's, there's no moralizing about it for me, you know? Yeah. So what it was for me was to need um, love from that man. Right. My yeah. thing was to get that man to stop needing that. Right. If he loved me, he would stop needing and chasing that. Which would be ultimately to actually be able to love. Right. In a way that was just a little selfless. I guess. I mean, well, to be able to love in a way that didn't hurt me, Mm. right? Because like these men, it's like they couldn't, they would need my love and want my love, but they would also need and want love from all these other women. 
And they would especially need and want love from women who were in a certain type of sexual energy. Yeah. Because that's their thing. Yeah. And there's no judgments on it. It just is what it is. I'm just reporting. Okay. The men I want to love me necessarily want this other thing. And then I'm like, well, what's the nature of that other thing? Well, it's something that I can't provide for them because it has to be one. Disconnected from a narrative or a story. Exactly. Or a, a person. Totally. There has to be a power thing going on there. Sure. Well, I, I say that you should you should definitely read this book because it'll take you a lot of places, a lot of cities. You go to India, they'll take you through several different <laughs> relationships, right. <laughs> motherhood, uh, prison, uh, family members that, uh, that uh, again, there was a couple of uh, instances in the book where, where you had family members from your father's side that you know dealt with some pretty heavy shit in a very mm -hmm. non-judgmental way. Mm -hmm. And there's no uh, foreboding, dark, uh, uh, sordid uh, energy uh, throughout the, what could seemingly be that type of experience. Uh, and it's a it's a real way to to look into that from a, a way of strength, as opposed to uh, you know I'm fuckness. Mm -hmm. Did a good job, Tracy. Thank you. Thank thanks you for, for having me. Thanks for talking. All right. Hey, Dad. Hey, you man. Good. What's up? What are you? California? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it's good here. Figured out going out to get a little ribs, I think, over at Chili's. They got some new sauce. Good. Craig uh, forwarded me uh, some Mother's Day uh, greeting that you sent out. That was kind of interesting. Yeah, I thought it was. <laughs> I didn't know that you should you know, mention Uzis and Magnums in a Mother's Day greeting. Okay. That was, that was the way my head was running at the moment. Right. Do you have loaded guns at the at the ready? Oh, yeah, I got fifteen or twenty guns. I think. I, yeah, I don't I don't shoot them really. I just I just have them. Uh -huh. I collected them. Uh -huh. I, I got one at the ready. Yeah. Do you have one in your car still? No, I carry it with me when I have to. When I'm going out, I'm going out in the evening. I uh, I pack it. Where do you really? Where, what, in a holster? Yeah. No, in a in a in a uh, sort of a shoulder bag. So you'd have to say, hold on a second. Let me get my no, gun. No, 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 no. It's it's ready. Yeah. I got robbed once. I'm not gonna. I don't want that to happen again. But you don't go practice with the guns. No. I, you know, when I'm going to use, it's going to be it's going to be within five or six feet. And you're ready to drop a guy. Yep. I'm ready to use it. Uh huh. Well, I was thinking about with all the guns you have that uh, I I I realize that the competition we if we ever get to a point where we could just have a duel. Who do you think would win in a duel? Me. <laughs> <laughs> no, that you didn't even think about that one. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. I and it, so hopefully it won't come to that because I don't. You'd, I'd have to come over and borrow one of your guns <laughs> to have a duel with you. It's, yeah. And you now the chili ribs. You're going out to get the. You're going out to get ribs of chilies. So. This this does is this a uh, this doesn't see this seems to go against the health plan to me. Well, it does and it doesn't. You know, I just like yes, last night we got four artichokes. Damn, I'm I'm into artichokes big time now. As long as they're in season, I guess you can eat them all the time. Artichoke is great. Yeah, to me it's great. Yeah, right. And and I would rather eat artichokes and artichoke hearts. 
than a lot of other things. I, I've almost stopped eating seafood, and I love seafood. Just artichokes. I, I'll eat artichokes, and uh, I'll eat thin, thin sliced uh, beef, I guess, and I'll eat some chicken. And uh, fish and stuff is just sort of difficult for me to tolerate anymore. Go take a look on the on Google. Google up uh, salmon lice. Salmon life. Lice, L-I-C-E, like rice in the hair. Salmon hair-like. lice, okay. You look at the salmon lice, you won't want to eat salmon again. I ate salmon last night. But you don't know where it came from. It came from the ocean. I know, you don't know which part, whether it was farmed, whether it was natural. Or you know, some guy jobbed it to a restaurant who served it, and you ate it. That kind of annoys me, bothers me. So the the idea of of food exchanging hands before preparation bothers you? Unless I know the source, I, I want I want wild, deep deep sea salmon. I, I don't want these penned, farm fed salmon because all the uh, all the omega threes are screwed up. You know your omega threes and sixes are, are backward because they're feeding them uh, corn. Oh, and they and and lice are being bred in these pens. Lice and lice, L I C E. These are salmon lice. Sea lice. Swim. Sea lice. And what do they do to us? I don't know what they do to us, but it sure doesn't look good that they know that I'm eating something that they've been eating. Uh, but that's the same. These are huge. These are huge things, Mark. Huge. But are they in the meat of the salmon? No, they're on the salmon. They're oh. eating. They're eating the surface of the salmon. Oh. And then I guess they must. They must put suckers inside to suck out what's there. But I, I don't think you can catch lice from the salmon. But just thinking of them being that sick a condition to be vulnerable to uh, sea lice annoys me. And does artichoke fight this uh, in any way? No. Oh. But I don't have to worry about it because I'm not eating salmon anymore. Got it. I'm just eating, I'm just eating stuff maybe. I don't know what I, what I eat. I, I, I might eat occasionally a shrimp. I might eat occasionally some oysters. Occasionally, and that's about it. All right, a lot to think about. So what are you doing now otherwise? Well, I've been touring a lot. And I've been doing the podcast twice a week, and I've been I've been going out and performing a lot. I'm going to go to Canada and Ireland. I'm going to go to London. Uh, new management's working out, and I've been you know people are coming to the shows because they hear the podcast. Is this new? Ma- you know these trips these trips abroad are they are they your new management paying for that? Is that part of the promotion? Well, usually the person that's bringing you out pays for the travel or at least a part of it. Oh, I see. Okay. It's part of the hey, booking. So you're being booked like uh, on, on separate events, separate productions, one-man shows type of thing? Yeah, I go do stand-up in these places for money. That's good. It's my job. That's your job. <laughs> good. Well, you're good at it. Enjoy it. All right, Dad. I love you. Love you too, babe. Bye. Thanks for calling. Yep. Bye. All right, so now I got... Three emails about salmon and vitamins. I got to, uh, I got to call him back. I got to call him back. Hey. Hey, Dad. Yeah. How Hold on. Going? Hold on one second. Just dry, just dry my hands, man. Hang in here. I'll be all right, Pop. What's going on, kid? Not much. I got your emails. Good. So let's let's talk about this. I don't know. It seems all your emails now are in a greeting card format. Do you know that? I don't know. It, I, it appeared on my screen, so I hit them, and it jumps onto my my email. <laughs> so everything's presented like it's going to be a fun thing. Right, right, right. right. 
<laughs> so the first one is about uh, particularly a uh, diet particularly large fish is a major source of methylmercury contaminant damages or destroys nerve tissues and affects the visual cortex and the cerebellum the part of the brain that controls complex movements and balance right Exposure. and memory and memory right uh, in a study, research examined that the effects of long-term exposure to small amounts of methyl mercury in adults bad. So, like this is, all right. So this was off the yeah the salmon discussion, right? And then in bold with the purple highlight, stop seafood. It's not safe. Love, Dad. That's what I believe. All right. Now here comes the uh, the the topper. The okay. This is uh, the subject heading idea. The ideal yeah. seafood restaurant. Start one. Properly presented and ideally based in New Zealand or uh, Arkansas? Uh, no, no, Alaska. Oh, Arkansas. Okay, at New Zealand or Alaska, young fish, big winner. Soon, only such fish will be edible. Dad, so, so you you see me uh, operating a, a salmon restaurant in New Zealand? No, no, using New Zealand basis for fish and the Alaska basis of young young fish, any young salmon type of fish. Line up, you know, really align yourself with a quality place that's bringing in quality fish, like mm. Vital Choice out of Alaska, for example. Right. You know, and uh, a place in New Zealand, like this place that I'm getting this uh, New Zealand green lip mussel oil, which is, you know, another omega-3, and set up a menu and advertise it and have a big, you know, have a, you know, your kitchen open up so people sitting at the bar, a nice looking bar, sitting there can look in and see you, you know, preparing the fish and... Get only quality stuff, so you're not dealing with all this shit that you don't know what the hell you're selling. So, so just so just open a restaurant with an open kitchen where people can see me cook their salmon, right? And uh, and and get a couple of fish connections in either New Zealand or Alaska, possibly both, right? And and that's it. We're it's a done deal. That'd be a fun restaurant. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I'll make note of that. I'll put it on the to do list. <laughs> Where do you think I should start? Getting the money for the restaurant or hooking up with some good seafood connections in New Zealand? Both. <laughs> I think I think the money for the restaurant would come easy. I, I bet you could get four four of your of your celebrity colleagues to open up a restaurant, a quality restaurant. Shit, they open up these other crap hole places that people love to go to. These big trendy places. So you think that the. Uh, the uh, the pitches that like look I know there's a lot of other restaurants out there, but this one's special. We're only going to sell salmon and mussels from Alaska and New Zealand. I mean, I my dad says it's a no brainer. <laughs> you think the money will come rolling in? <laughs> you, know, you get the right people who are interested in that kind of thing. I think I think it, I could be I think it'd be good. All I would right. love to I would love to go sit in New York and have quality seafood that now that I know what I know about this shit, I want stuff that I can say, well, where's it coming from? Right, here he is. He's, he's Peter New Zealander. He's shipping it in just for me. So you would like to have perhaps a, a waiter come over with a representative from New Zealand who presents you with the fish. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Mark, the, the, you know, I see on the news today on this on the web. I just looked at it, you know, five minutes ago. Mm. They're, they're talking about that the fish. There, there might not be fish in the ocean in uh, whatever year. Well, that would or, solve all our problems, wouldn't it? Then we would have to worry about salmon lice <laughs> or where it comes from. <laughs> That's right, man. They just got the about space lice. Do you just get like the shitty news? Do you have a special channel where it's just the <laughs> shitty news that they pipe into your house, <laughs> or do you just choose to focus on that? 
I don't know what what cable system you have. But... All right, well, I, I'll take that as uh, as as good sound advice, and I will I will definitely uh, do more research in my salmon. So that, if I do that, everything will be okay, and you're you're willing to say the world will be okay if we just you know, <laughs> eat the right salmon. Yeah. yeah, unbelievable the pollution out there, Mark. Unbelievable. <laughs> I know. All right. Well, I love I you. I love Pop. you. Bye. Take care, man. Bye. Okay, that's our show. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, we learned a little bit about dads. I, I should have dropped this on Father's Day. Let's let's look at this show as a a uh, an early Father's Day uh, show. If you have any WTF Pod needs, or even if you don't, please go to WTFPod.com. You can get on the mailing list, which is fun, and I'm doing it, and I'm keeping up with it weekly, and I'm writing things for you and sending pictures and links and little things about the guests and other stuff. Also, a reminder, tomorrow night, May 21st, 8 p.m., at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in Los Angeles, we will be doing a live What the Fuck with Brendan Walsh, Moshe Kasher, uh, Laura Keitlinger, Eddie Pepitone, and Jim Earl. They're always fun. Come on down. I'll bring a few Nerdcock shirts and some some JustCoffee.coop, which you can get at WTFPod.com as well. Also, Canada. May 27th through 29th in Toronto, I will be at Yuck Yucks. Go to yuckyucks.com for information. And please support our show uh, if you can afford it. We are listener supported, and you can do that at WTFPod.com. And as always, punchlinemagazine.com if you want any up-to-date comedy news. And if you're interested in stand-up, standuprecords.com has a great catalog of comedy. Many of the people that I've had on the show are are available on stand-up records. And uh, love your dad if it's at all possible. Thanks a lot, you guys.